Hello, this is Rob Carmichael, and welcome to another Mainly Matters Business Podcast. I've been on a bit of of a summer hiatus, but happy to be back to share another story of one of our local leaders, a mover and a shaker in uh, the Bangor area, who's really, I've come to know and and worked with, and he's uh, an incredibly energetic guy with great vision, and we're going to have a great discussion, I think, today about uh, waterfront concerts. So today I have as my guest Chris Rudolph, the head of corporate sponsorships, Waterfront Concerts. We're going to talk a bit about Chris's journey that led him to this exciting uh, job. I would say exciting. We'll find out. I I believe he (laughs) thinks it's exciting. And and I'm sure it's an exhausting role as well in bringing the biggest and best entertainment to Maine. It's most specifically to the new Maine Savings Amphitheater on the Bangor waterfront. And what a great time to talk with Chris after one of the, arguably one of the most exciting weekends of entertainment in Bangor over the last few days. We had Luke Combs for two shows, back-to-back nights, and and the famed Aerosmith uh, rock band coming in on, on Sunday, which was an amazing show. So welcome to Mainly Matters, Chris. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. And I, uh, I'm I'm very excited to talk with you as always. But this time, we're actually we're encouraging recording this conversation, which is new to both of us for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm, you know, and I'm honored that you've uh, you'll you'll take a few minutes out of your your busy week. Uh, and I know your family's important too, too as well. So I really appreciate the time to talk a little bit about this because this is. This is an amazing journey uh, for probably for you, but also to the Bangor region. And I know for Maine Savings as being, uh, and to be, you know, perfectly open, uh, I want to make sure everybody knows, I think they do. Maine Savings is the, the major sponsor. It's a Maine Savings Amphitheater. We've been a proud partner to work with Chris over the years, and, and we're just uh, extremely pleased to be uh, the sponsor of of, uh, of this venue, and and what an amazing venue! We'll talk a little bit more about that. But Chris, I I want to just get a little background uh, about your journey here. How did you How did you end up? You I don't think you're from Maine. You're I think you're from Massachusetts, right? Uh, that's correct. I'm a transplant. A transplant. Uh, I try to I try not to uh, to have people know that all too often. Um, usually, when my R's get dropped, when my my folks are in town, is when people really start to pick it up. But I am. I grew up in uh, Needham, Massachusetts, which is about eight miles outside of Boston. Um, I was born in Dorchester and uh, raised in Needham, and um, lived there uh, all through the early stages of college. Uh, I'm a Rhodes Scholar uh, because of all the colleges I went to and, and didn't <laughs> go and finish. Um, but I moved up here. I was bartending in Boston and uh, I was about 22, 23 years old. Um, and I was just kind of bouncing around, but doing really well in the bar scene down there. And a couple of my buddies were like, hey, do you want to move to Maine? And I said, uh, not really. And they said, well, if you move up here with us, we can get a house and it'll be just the three of us and your rent will be 200 bucks. And I said, I'll be there Monday. And I was. Um, so I moved up here and uh, I kind of bounced around the restaurant scene here. I was the manager at the old Paul's, which was the 95er mm-hmm. on uh, on 95 and then uh, went and opened all gardens across the country. And honestly, I was really just trying to do it to um, to get out of here. You know, it was I loved I loved the people I was with, but I wasn't really in love with this area for the first, you know, quite a few years I was here. So I would take any opportunity I could to go home and work in destination management, which I'd come from, or to just go open the Olive Gardens across the country to kind of give myself a little break and need that big city feel. 
Um, and it wasn't really until, um, I had, you know, I had my wife and two kids and we built a house and all these sorts of things. And I was kind of complacent in the fact that this was going to be the rest of my life, um, in Maine, which was wonderful. But, you know, I always kind of felt like there was more for me up here. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, my divorce that I actually was kind of forced into a situation where everything I thought I was working for was no longer, um, you know, the rule, if you will. Uh, mm -hmm. so I, I made my way to downtown Bangor and, and became the bartender at Patty Murphy's. And it was there that I really found this whole second life. I was 31 with two kids under three. Um, you know, and it was, you're here now, you know, your wife was from here. My wife was from here. And now it became, this is where I'm going to be. And my father tells the story. He remembers getting the call, um, where I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stuck here and, and, you know, I didn't know what to do. Um, and what I decided to do was make this a place where I wanted to be and do everything I could to in, immerse myself in this community and do as much as I could to, you know, better not only myself, but where I was living. Um, I came from a very strong community minded uh, parents. They were heavily involved in the church when I was growing up and and in the community, wherever they could be. And that was one of the major things that were instilled. Um, and I just found that that was where I felt I needed to be. And because of my role as the bartender, as you remember, um, in, in Bangor, I mean, I was, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was fairly good at what I did. And because of that, I developed, you know, relationships with people in and out through this, you know, this town and, and beyond that, that really came to me for advice that I really didn't understand why they were coming to me for advice. And next thing I know, I was, um, you know, kind of on our way. We ran the arena campaign and helped to get that built. And, you know, people were asking me to go and join boards and do all these sorts of things. And, and really it's where it, it catapulted, um, you know, me to that, that next kind of level community wise. And then some friends were, you know, they decided they were going to do the Kabang festival. Um, and they asked me if I wanted to be a part of that. And, and I was extremely excited because, you know, it was an opportunity to bring, you know, the music scene to and give us something to do, quite frankly, because there wasn't a whole lot to do back then in Bangor. Um, so we just started doing that as a volunteer. And I remember throwing on a, a shirt and a jacket and volunteering 40 hours a week, really, to try to get this festival off the ground. And we were just, you know, kids, essentially, just trying to get some respect <laughs> And, uh, you know, here we are. Sure. Uh, I, I, years later. I had forgotten about Kabang and, and I, and I knew you had been, were you involved in fusion, Bangor fusion as well? Yeah, I was, um, you know, as much as a limited capacity, mm -hmm. uh, with the, with the babies and they were, you know, they were meeting at eight o'clock in the morning and I tried bringing, uh, a one-year-old to sit at those board meetings at eight o'clock in the morning, but they weren't really too, too keen on it. So what I ended up getting involved with, um, was Bangor green drinks. Um, and that was really my first journey into, um, the community work. And we started, uh, me and some of, you know, the other folks, we started, uh, Bangor Green Drinks as a nonprofit mm -hmm. and we, we started the green grant program and raised a ton of money. They're up to that organization has now raised $60,000 for local, uh, greening initiatives and, and the like. And that started from just us having some parties and, and, you know, having these get togethers where people would drink beer and showcase local organizations. Um, so that was really my, my first kind of big break into it, um, which again led to Kabang, which led to, you know, my relationship with Alex, which led to here we are 
13 years later uh, and we're still doing concerts for a living, which as a kid from Massachusetts, I never would have dreamed. Just, uh, just amazing. And, you know, I, I, I was thinking about as, as when I first met you and I think it was down at, uh, at Patty's uh, mm-hmm. when you were down there and uh, you, you, you know, you exude that sort of personality that is going to lend itself to just about anything. But if you're doing anything with the public, any engagement with the public, you you know, and you you wanted to find that person, your face comes to mind. I, I remember thinking that after that first meeting with you, and then to see where you've where you've come all these years in, in the community is is amazing, and obviously very happy for you and your family and for Bangor because uh, we're all benefiting. So that's that's just well. Tremendous. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, we you know, I I came from a very um, you know, I came from a, a, a time when if you were not the most well-behaved and all these sorts of things as kids, you you kind of had to find your own way, right? There's a little bit more um, knowledge and, and carefulness with, uh, with kids today about mental health and all these sorts of things. And I kind of always had this little weird thing with me. Um, and it kind of gave me this, this lack of self-worth. And even when I was bartending, I always, you know, I had that very much, I carried that stigma of I'm just a bartender. I want to be more than a bartender. I don't always want to be a bartender. Um, and I carried that with me for a long time. And it really wasn't until I got to this role where, you know, it's amazing to see on the other side, the people who would give you the time of day when you're serving them ranch dressing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, to, to understand that and to be able to now go to the universities and to go, you know, really and talk to some of these young people and try to let them know that it's all nonsense. You know, none of this matters. Don't, don't hold these stigmas over yourself because you're more valuable than you know. And it wasn't until I got to a point where everybody's saying, man, your job's amazing, man, and this and this and this and this, that I was saying to myself, man, there's a lot of days where I wish I was just a bartender, you know, because it, it really, I was always the same person. I was just looked at differently and I allowed that to affect myself. Um, and now it's, it's a good feeling for me to be able to go and try to help people to understand that that's just not the case. Oh, that's, that's awesome. And it is, it is too bad because it, in many of these occupations, the skill set required transcends beyond just, you know, that one occupation. I mean, it, right. it, it's amazing that the things you have to deal with as a bartender, for instance, those skills are so valuable. And I think people underestimate just that one little piece of it to, to any number of jobs, any number of careers. And, well, it's really, it's funny you say that because I've actually worked, I'm sure you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. and uh, the disc mm-hmm. training. So I actually have developed my own uh, my own training um, and my wife laughs that I should have a book about it and we'll see what happens. But it really is that every single person that you meet in the world and especially in business, well, since I've been doing this, you can relate as someone who works in the restaurant industry. So everybody has a restaurant personality. So you have the bartender who wants to be the show and they love to be the face of everything. And they're just out there and they're, you know, slinging drinks and having interactions and just love it. And then you have the server that loves to be out there, but also loves to be able to get away from it when they need to. When you're behind the bar, you're stuck there and you're the show, right? But with a server, you can make up that excuse 
and you can, you know, say, oh, the kitchen needs me for something and you disappear. And that's your introverted extrovert. And then you've got your chef and he's just so focused on the craft and he just wants to do his work and just be so proud of the work. And sometimes he enjoys the face of being the face of it like the bartender does. But oftentimes they're just there for the craft. And then you've got your cooks and they're just kind of there because they want to do, you know, they're just trying to get through the day and they like the craft, but they're just trying to interact with their buddies behind it. They don't want to deal with people and they think it's all nonsense. And then you cut your dish kids who most of the time just want to get through the day. And if you take all of these different personalities, every single person in the workforce identifies that way. So if you identify with people the way that I do, I can sit there and have a conversation with you or with some of the, you know, the business leaders, and I literally will dissect who they are in the kitchen or who they are in a restaurant. And that's how I will approach my relationship with them. So similar to the I's and the D's and all these Mm -hmm. sorts of things, you have your bartenders, you have your cooks, you have your servers. And if you break it up that way, it's an entirely different way for people, especially who've ever been in the hospitality industry to attack it. It's a great perspective. And uh, you and I need to talk sometime, maybe over a beer. I'm I'm a certified Myers-Briggs Instruct. I went to Boston for three days and I'm fascinated by it. And I'm doing always doing the same thing when I'm when I'm in groups. I'm looking at the interaction between people. And it, it's a great yep. point, though, that you make in those well, those occupations. And I used to just I when I started talking about it, I would go to like schools and talk about it, especially at hospitality classes. And it was just originally bartenders and cooks. And what I found is I always identified as a bartender, but I'm the server. Like, I love being the show, but there are times where I just don't want to be around it. And everybody says, oh, you're so great at, you know, this, that, and the other thing with the the personal part of it. But as you know, from having to do it all the time, it is exhausting. Oh, sure And sometimes is. all you want to do is just say, hey, you know what? The kitchen needs me and take that step out and, you know, hang out out back for a few minutes while your buddies are smoking a cigarette. That's where you get your energy back. You have to That's go it. out into that that uh, inner inner world and and. and- get your energy back. Uh, that's great. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about let, well, let's start talking about the uh the business itself. And and you know, I don't know how much you can share, so when I if I ask a question, feel free to tell sure. me I can't talk about it or no, or please, what have you. No, please. You ask the questions cuz you know I'll never stop talking. About <laughs> uh the you know that a lot of people don't have any clue about what goes on um with, with this sort of business and how it works. So maybe we can start with, the, first of all, the relationship between Live Nation, Waterfront Concerts, or Live Nation and any any concert venue. Sure. I mean, the the relationship with Live Nation, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about in a grand scope. Live Nation owns 85% of the world's entertainment. Um, so they're the big dog. Um, when there was relationship things that needed to be decided with the agents, well, what did they do? They decided to start Live Nation agencies, um, and then they bought up all the agents, right? So they own quite a bit of different things. They also, and this isn't anybody's shocker, but they own Ticketmaster as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it all kind of flows through them. Um, Live Nation has what they called own and operated uh, venues, and then they also have uh, partner venues, we at Waterfront Concerts fall under a partner venue. So what we are is essentially it's a revenue split. Um, and what that does is it gives us access to shows that we normally would theoretically have to overpay for. Um, and then we split the revenue on the sponsorships and the seats and all of these other things. Um, 
we're one of the few left, quite frankly. I mean, you know, there aren't as many of the independent promoters at the level that we're doing it, especially uh, left in the world, um, because, you know, Live Nation has gone through them pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're kind of, a, we're still that little bit of an anomaly. So you work through, uh, let's just take uh, the, the Weekend Acts, uh, sure. Aerosmith. You, you work through Ni- Live Nation, uh, present, you know, a proposal or something, and then they they throw that by these these entities? So strangely enough, this weekend is one of those rare um, weekends where we we were the ones, and and by we in this particular instance, I mean Alex was the one who went out and got all three of these shows. Um, as an independent, we still have the ability to go outside of the sphere of Live Nation. So sometimes tours like the Harry Styles and some of these other tours, they're owned by AEG or other large promoters because those are the two big ones, is Live Nation and AEG. So what we've done for these ones, Alex chased Aerosmith for years and years and years. And sometimes what that means is you take shows that are smaller, but they have the same representatives that then get you the next show that are a little bigger that have the same representatives. So you blow those shows out of the water. So then they actually give you a shot at an Aerosmith. Mm. Um, that and, and the check that you write obviously is very heavily weighed um, in that. But you know, if you look at the Aerosmith show, they only played our place and Boston and then went back to live uh, to Las Vegas. So, you know, we're we're one of the, the big lucky ones this year. Right. Amazing. Um, and yeah, it was. And then with Luke Combs, you know, Alex worked very closely with, you know, some of his representatives to put on a festival using a lot of our logistics down in Florida and being able to execute and show them what we can do and show them that we're not a joke ended up leading to the two-night run that we ended up getting, which hopefully then furthers us with many nights and all of these residencies that you're ultimately chasing. So there are a lot of different ways to go about getting the tours. There's putting your hand up, and if REO Speedwagon is playing at Boston and they're on their way to Canada, well, it makes sense to go through Bangor and make a stop. Um, But oftentimes it's really just chasing and hoping and really just executing over and over again um, you know, executing at a high level with Jimmy Buffett got us Elton John or vice versa. I mm-hmm. can't remember, but you know, it's a lot of the times you're playing in the same sandbox with some people that you don't even realize how influential they are. In in the the experience that that they have with the crowd, with the venue, and those sorts of things impacts not just how they feel about it, but how they relay that to other acts down the road. Correct. That's correct. That is a hundred percent correct. I mean, if if you know Jason Aldean, um, I remember an instance last year where uh, one of the other tours was in town, and the reps were asking each other, "Oh, where are you tonight?" He said, "Oh, we're in you know, say Salt Lake City," and they said, "Oh, we're in Bangor." And Jason Aldean's rep said, "Oh, we love that place. That's one of our favorite places to play." And those are the things that you hear from people. And if you are able to execute, especially the backstage, uh, backstage experience and the fan experience, then people will want to come back and keep playing in our venue. Um, I argue that our fans are as rabid as they get. The intensity and the love and the, you know, the way that they engage with artists, you don't see that in many venues. And it's because we are so appreciative of anybody that wants to come to us. Um, and I think that that's why we're successful backstage. I, I relayed a story earlier today about how Luke Combs's tour said to Alex that they loved Robbie, who is our production head. 
And they said, we love him because any complaint they would go with and they were worried about, Robbie would just say, hey, man, we're good. We're doing a show. And it's that laid back atmosphere of we're going to get this done. We'll do anything you need. How can we help you that people, I think, really, they take to that because they have they don't always have that experience. And, and Luke Combs experienced something I'm sure that all performers dread. I don't know how many times it happens to performers, but what a what an amazing thing he did on Saturday night. Yeah, I mean, you know, to really, honestly, he didn't need to. If he if he hadn't wanted to, for the amount of time he went out and played, um, there were two openers and he played an hour plus. He could have justified not giving a refund, but he went out there and he looked at that crowd and he said, I'm not going to be able to give you 100%. I don't think that's fair. I know how hard you work for your dollar and I'm going to make this right. And he could have stopped at that, right? He could have just said, I'm giving you a refund, good night. And promoters don't love that because you don't know what you're going to get. There's been two hours of drinking in your venue and if the, you know, the artist decides to not play, it could have been a problem for us on many levels. Um, but for him to honor that relationship with his fan base, uh, I've never seen anything like it. it. It was one of those just amazing moments. And I was very fortunate to be backstage when he came off the stage and to be the one from our organization to tell him what that meant to the fan base. I, I was just blown away by it. And to see him so emotional and hugging his, you know, his team and, and showing real emotion. It's not like he was phoning this in and he right. was just being, you know, kind of playing it up. He was broken by this and he, he played through some real pain. Um, and I just told him, you know, listen, what you just gave that fan base is something that they will never forget in their entire lives. They'll always remember where they were for this and to not hold his head, you know, down because he should have been so proud of everything. And he really got teary and he thanked me and he was just so appreciative. And it was, it was an amazing, amazing night. And it's just, he just endeared himself even more to the fans. If he, you know, he already was, or he had a reputation from what I could gather as a really, really great guy and great performer, but really, really sincere in everything he did. And and this just endeared him even more to the fans that were out there. What a, what yeah, a, and he made a lot of new fans for sure. He did. And, you know, he, he, in our, in my job, particularly, I saw a lot, of, I see a lot of people that come to all the shows, whether they like the music or not. And I, I spoke to several people who said, man, I'm going to go out. And I'm going to support this kid forever now. Incredible. And in the, in the artist, a lot of people, because you read, read the posts and sometimes people don't understand that the artist or the uh, or or Live Nation or somebody other than you sort of dicks, dictates the the seating. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we they dictate the the pricing. Um, you know, we we essentially have to cater our pricing based on how much we pay the artist. Um, most of the time now, the deals are all structured that the artist takes you know ninety to a hundred percent of the gate when they come in. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's set by, uh, how much, you know, 16,000 people, 14,000 people, 12,000 people, mm-hmm. um, how much is it going to cost? What is that divided by 12,000? What do the ticket prices need to be to make that scaling work so that the lawn pays what they're supposed to and the front pays what they're supposed to. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, people, 
people complain and and rightfully so. I mean, listen, we all remember not all of us, but you know, probably the people listening to this podcast for the most part remember the the twelve dollar ticket, the nineteen dollar ticket, the eight dollar ticket. You know, way back in the day with a five solid five dollar service fee, right? So for those people, I understand the complaints of a two hundred dollar ticket, but the tours will argue, and again, rightfully so that there's no album sales anymore because of streaming and because mm-hmm. of pirating and because of YouTube. So they're not making any money off of people actually supporting their art anymore. So the way that they have to survive now is through ticket sales. And they, they structure, is there any, um, I thought there was a way that they structured, like somebody might say, I, I want the pit this big, or I want the, mm-hmm. uh, do they still do that? Do you still have the ability to manage that? Or? They do. No, we, you know, it, we are lucky in the respect that we're a hybrid venue uh, in the front, so we can have a full pit if we want to. Um, some tours would just assume have full GA. Obviously, we don't generally do that anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we know that a lot of times they want a small pit, or they want a small pit with a thrust, which is that stage extension, mm-hmm. or they want a full pit. So yeah, in that respect, they do dictate. We don't do that based on sales. Sure. And and for everybody listening, main savings doesn't have anything to do with the acts, <laughs> right? Yeah, leave them alone. Main main savings again. When we started this sponsorship, and we're we're obviously we're in a long a long term relationship here, um, long after we're going to be doing this, either of us. Um, and you know, it's one of those where. Oftentimes, that happens where when the the name is on it, people think you bought the venue. Or think that you run the venue. Um, we saw that for years with with the Darlings family, um, where you know people thought they owned it or thought they had something to do with it, and they would get all those sorts of calls about why can't you do this, why can't you do this. But it's uh, it's a bunch of people that have been working out of a garage since uh, you know the the late two thousand elevens and twelves, and um, we're still in a garage and we're still doing the best we can and we hear you and we're trying to make improvements on everything every single day. And, and you certainly do. And that, that's a great segue into, let's talk about the, the transformation of the main savings amp and, and let's maybe start with, um, COVID. We, yeah. you guys had such a challenge, just <laughs> like the rest of the world. And, but you had, I believe you had just begun the process at that point, maybe right around. That we time. had, we, um, COVID was a, you know, again, I, I, there are people who had it way worse than myself. Um, it was very scary. It was, uh, I was actively looking, you know, I was going to start selling real estate, right? Because I, I didn't know what it was going to be. Luckily I, I'm more than happy to go back into the bar business. Um, but you know, it was, there was no certainty. Um, I think, you know, the reason why a lot of things have changed in this world now anyway, right, is because if this had been the plague, like we originally maybe thought, people started to question why they were doing anything at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of life choices and second guesses. We were hit harder than a lot of others. Um, our industry in general shut down completely. I was in meetings with you know, 230 people on Live Nation calls. And all of a sudden, three weeks later, I was on meetings with 13 people um, on Live Nation calls. So, you know, we were not sure what it was going to look like. Uh, Locally, our team pivoted um, pretty hard. I went back into the restaurant business and helped Alex while he opened Canoe up in Old Town. 
Um, a beautiful lot of our venue, staff, by the way. Beautiful. Yes, place. Thank you. It, it better be. <laughs> um, we, uh, you know, we we did some pivoting and and tried to help where we could and justify our existence while also, um, you know, looking around at some of our compatriots that were, you know, dealing with other things uh, financially. So it was a really hard time. We didn't know how we were going to come back. Um, we had already started on the you know groundwork of of trying to build this venue. We'd been committed to a forty year contract with the city. Um, we'd taken out some loans. We were doing a whole bunch of things, and we really didn't know where to go from there. It, and it uh, it really the challenges for everybody, and and I'm sure people, you know, once you started back or you started the road back, people, talent. Uh, the workers. <laughs> that must have been a huge challenge getting people back yeah. on board. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're a little easier, right? Because first of all, with our team, we're very small. We've always been very small. The largest our core staff has ever been is 25. Um, but our our employees that we are having for most shows and a lot of the shows, we're about a thousand people. But if we were to employ them for all of the shows, it's still only 20 dates. So we don't have a lot of the struggles that a place that would hire them full time would. Um, People can still get different checks that they would be trying to get working for us because we can't give them the hours that would take away their benefits. I know that's a problem for people and that's not exactly what people want to hear, but we're fortunate in that respect um, because of the fact that we don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to show up because they're worried about them going over their hours for unemployment and some of these other things. Also, you know, teachers and, and older folks and, and younger folks, really everybody, a lot of them just want to go and be a part of the concerts. So it's not like we're asking them to come wash windows. We're asking them to come, you know, sling beers at a concert or seat people and then watch the show. So there's a, there's a cool factor that we actually have an advantage for as most people. And so understand. typically in a, in a show, maybe a range between uh, 900 or a thousand folks. Yeah. I mean, we have on a general show, um, you know, during a sellout show, I would, I would venture to say we have somewhere around 400 active, um, employees and, and volunteers and all of the like um, in different capacities. But we our staff throughout the state for all of our, our, our staffing is, is a thousand strong at this point. Wow. Wow. And yeah. what, what um, the esti- estimated economic impact to Bangor and the surrounding communities, do you have any idea right off the top of your head? With that? I mean, as of now, it's trending towards that three million every time we turn the lights on um, per show. Um, you know, we were at a hundred and something million dollars for the first few years. And obviously we've gotten to a whole different level. Um, it'll be very interesting to see when the study comes out next year, where we are coming back from COVID. Um, our capacity obviously has, has increased. The caliber of shows has increased. You've seen it in the hotels and the restaurants around town. They're all full. So I would argue that they're, uh, it's as strong as it's ever going to be. And it's and it just keeps getting better. With uh, let's talk a little bit about the venue, the status of, of the venue. I I look at it and I think, well, it's, it must be about ninety five percent complete, ninety percent complete. What what are your what's your take on that? 
you know, I'd love to say that it's 95% complete, but every time I do that, it goes back down to 20% because we get better ideas of what we're going to do. <laughs> um, I would say that for the general fan experience, it's probably 90, 89, 90% complete. We've got a hundred uh, bathrooms on the main street side that are still going to come online. We've got a, another complete concessionarium on both the lawn um, side, the, the railroad side and uh, the lower level on Main Street that's going to come online. So those will obviously make huge improvements to ease of access and the like. Um, but other than those, those are the major things for for the general fan. Um, we have a lot of full season clubs uh, that are still, as you know, yet to be built. Um, some corporate suites. And then on the uh, about three weeks ago, I was informed that we're going to be doing um, some roof decks as well, which are going to we're calling the sky boxes and they're going to be party decks on the roof. Um, not to mention all the stuff we're going to start doing off days, right? We're going to do, um, we have a nine hole disc golf course that we've got all set up, ready to go. And we're doing movie nights and yoga nights. And we're going to put a rooftop bar on the, uh, riverside for people to come and do lobster rolls and oysters and do sunsets on days off. It's, it never stops. Plus we have to redo the entire backstage area, um, to now improve the artist area once again. So it never really stops, and I don't think it ever will. And there was there was uh, some discussion of a walkway from the parking over to the venue, or is that? That's it's still to be determined. There's a lot of hoops to jump through, but yeah, ultimately we uh, we would love to be able to build a sky bridge over uh, over the railroad tracks into the parking lot on the other side for ease of access as well. Very very cool. That's it. Yep. It continues just every time I go there. And this time was the first time that I had actually been when you opened the Main Street exit there, and the and what an easy way to get out. Uh, yeah, it does. It makes a difference. We're just we're just trying and trying and trying, and and there have been some bumps and bruises, and obviously uh, we haven't we haven't nailed it completely. But I I think you know from our perspective, it's gone about as good as we can expect. Um, and we're going to keep making improvements as we go. Yeah, that That's the only attitude to have. You're, you're dealing yep. with a lot of variables that are, that are, uh, unknown or, or changing all the time. Yeah. And with, you know, the size of the footprints, never going to get bigger. We're never going to go into main street. We're never going to go into the railroad, um, outside of, you know, hopefully maybe someday we can absorb, um, that concourse area out towards, um, you know, that the railroad street that goes up the hill, because if we had that big swath of grass and could put a B stage and a concourse and all these sorts of things, I think that would be the only thing that would really be a game changer for us. Interesting. A lot more opportunity out there for you, for sure. For sure. Uh, as, you, as a leader, and in, in most of us have been dealing with uh, uncertainty in the last two or three years, uh, how do you deal with an environment that is so unpredictable and uncertain as a leader of your, in your organization? Well, I think that, I think with everything, um, the one thing that, you know, has made for lack of a better term has made me successful is the fact that I look for honest dialogue. Um, I try to lead with, you know, oftentimes with my heart, um, I've never been dishonest with the people in my team. Um, I've always told them exactly what's, happening versus the projections of what could happen. Um, I found from people, you know, embellishing the, the realities of things, it makes it worse. And if there's not going to be jobs for people, you need to do them, you know, do right by them and, and say, Hey, listen, this is something that you might need to be prepared for. 
Um, and in our case, luckily, as we've come back, there seems to be some long-term growth opportunities for people. Um, and I think that much like my relationship with, with Maine Savings, the only reason why we are where we are is because I've always told them the truth. Um, my word, and especially in small communities, but in life at this point, if you, another little thing that I live by is that, um, you know, I always say that I have one ex-wife and I don't need 50 more of them running around my venues (laughs) on a day of show mad at me because I didn't execute on something that I promised. And I live by that because I enjoy my job. I want to be able to go to work and go to shows and I'm, I already don't even get to get to enjoy the music, right? I don't even get to hear it most nights, but I don't want to spend the night trying to dodge somebody or not have interaction with somebody. I don't need that in my life. It's a stressor. Um, and it's one of those things that you just, I would never want to look forward to that. So if you just tell everybody to the best of your ability, what the expectation is, and you live and die by that, you will never have to worry about it. And it's been a huge, um, it's been something that took me a long time to realize in my life. Um, there were plenty of people that I dodged and, and it, as I got older and started to really look at my life in my early thirties, I think that's where I really turned that corner. That's great advice for anybody looking, looking to get into this, this sort of business or anything to do with, uh, dealing with the public and uh, in, in serving the public in any way. Great, great advice. Is there any, is well, there somebody in, we've all had in our careers, we've had people who have helped us along the way, mentors, uh, those sorts of people. Is there anybody uh, or group of people that you single out to say, hey, they had a huge impact to help me get where I am today? You know, I, I've been very fortunate to, you know, it, it starts with my my parents and it goes all the way through to, all, you know, a lot of my my business mentors. I mean, I had a lot of people when I was at Patty's that believed in me when I didn't, um, that saw something in me when I didn't, uh, I was running around in a shirt and a jacket pretending to be something that I was. And, and as you know, uh, I've said it a million times and I'll clean it up for the, for the, for the <laughs> podcast, but you know, I, if I'm ever wearing a shirt and tie, that means we're in big trouble. <laughs> um, I have said that when I've gone into meetings and they, I, I walked into a big meeting and I was wearing flip-flops and, and shorts because I wasn't expecting the meeting. And I was told, hey, they're wearing suits. And I said, if I need to wear a suit again, we're effed. Um, <laughs> and, I, and and it's a real thing. It's, it's something that I am my authentic self. Mm-hmm. I am exactly who I am. And I was taught that by people who believed in me as the bartender at Patty Murphy's wiping up the beer off the table. Um, Bob Riazzo, who was the... Um, the athletic director at Husson comes to mind. Um, you know, I've had teachers along the way, but I'll tell you, and it, this, it'll sound corny. Um, my, my wife now, um, we've been together for 11 years at this point, And she was one of the first people who was like, you are worth so much more than you're giving yourself credit for. And to have that constant, person calling you out on your own BS and calling you out on your own woe is me attitude. Um, it goes a long way. It, it, it is, it's so important to have that constant reassurance, even when you're at your lowest. Um, and for me, my family has always been the most important thing for me. Uh, and that was just to have someone on a professional level and to be someone who's such a killer in her own 
world and she's in marketing. She owns her own marketing agency. And to have someone at that level say the same thing about me where I didn't see it, uh, it was it was huge for me, for sure. And obviously, you know, you know, plenty of people uh, in your world who I've been with for 20 years who saw things that I didn't as well. Uh, just uh, again, great advice. And, and to me, what I take away from that is be honest with yourself and be yep. be authentic. And and so many times I think in my career there, I've, I've been very happy and very successful in a lot of ways. And I'm still not sure whether it's my authentic self at this stage of my life. So maybe my authentic self is to come work for you, Chris. Down at the, <laughs> I love uh, it. Yeah, the environment talk. wearing flip flops and and uh, shorts. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny because when we closed the main savings deal, um, I remember, uh, you know, people don't understand that. You know, again, it's one of those things where, as I don't believe that I'm now responsible for the two largest naming rights deals in the history of the state of Maine. Like, I don't get that on my end. I, it's hard for me to fathom. And one of the reasons it's so hard is because when we went to sign the papers with John, I was wearing, I don't even know, uh-huh. it was either shorts or a t-shirt or whatever. And my beard was down to my knees probably because it was winter. And he looked at me and he said, Good to see you dressed up for this one. (laughs) You know, it's that moment of how is this kid that never believed this could ever happen when I wore, you know, I'd walk into Great Woods down in uh, Massachusetts, which is now the Xfinity Mm -hmm. Center. I never looked around and said, how do I work here? That's never something that crossed my mind. And if you had told 15-year-old me that I was going to do this for a living, I would have said you were crazy and please get me to that point immediately. And to have never expected it, to have really just pushed our way into doing this in a community that no one at Live Nation, no one in the city, no one in my household thought was going to work. To now look at the world-class amphitheater that we are we have built and are continuing to put the finishing touches on. It really is a testament to just pushing past the noise and just focusing on trying to do the best you can. I, I look at, I see it as it's a, it's a vision that you all had. Alex started with Alex, and, and you and you and and all those involved with it, uh, just a vision of what could be, and really? then and then working to make that a reality. And that if that's an example, any better example of the power of vision, I don't know what there would be, but that, that is just, uh, it's amazing. Every time I step foot in there, it's, it's just amazing. I hey. shake my head at Alex every time he opens his mouth. He <laughs> says something and I say, there's no way. And then here it is. It's amazing. You've got to have that person who says, this is what we want to do. And then the rest of us say, this is how we're going to get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, we're, uh, we're about, uh, at the end here. I have one, one last question and, and I'm going to phrase this sure. in a way to give you an out. So if, <laughs> without sharing anything confidential, can you sure. talk about any unique, uh, things that have happened back to the performers requirements or things backstage that people would say, Oh man, that is interesting. Anything at all? No, most of the riders have kind of been weeded out over the years where, you know, we've kind of, um, there are some that are still a little bit on the higher end of things. You know, usually for us, it's a lot of stuff that you just can't get in Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's wines that are available in New York and all of these sorts of things. 
But the days of the green M&Ms for the most part have gone by the wayside. <laughs> um, you know, we, we definitely see a lot of, um, you know, things that are at Whole Foods and whatnot. But, you know, we, we're pretty good about being able to execute on a different level here. Um, our entire relationship with these artists, as we talked about, is based on how we execute their experience. Mm -hmm. What we are in Maine is our backstage experience. These guys and girls are all spending, you know, so much time on tour buses, so much time in basements of arenas and all of these other places. What are we? Well, we're Maine in the summer. So what are we going to offer? We do fire pits and s'mores bars with every kind of candy to put on that fire you can imagine. And we do an open bar for the tour all day long. And we do the catering in this late night menu that you've never seen before. That is just the most amazing food from our chef and baker who is spectacularly talented. So we have all of these different little things that kind of offset any tours, you know, requests. We've had a lot of people come in that are very hard nosed, don't want anything to do with us. Can't even believe they're playing in Maine are just waiting to get back on the bus and by the end of it, they are blown out of the water, can't believe what an experience it was, and all they want to do is come back. So, you know, we offset the things that we miss on by not being able to get a bottle of wine or, you know, the, the glass bottle of water that you can only get mm -hmm. in Switzerland. You know, we try to offset that as much as possible with a smile and uh, a party. And a lobster roll, maybe. Now. And a lobster, always a lobster roll. Oh, my God, always a lobster roll. So we, oh, uh, you know, great. we've even shipped, we've shipped a canoe to uh, a chalet in Switzerland before uh, because they wanted that specific one that we put our food in. We have a buffet out back and we always put it in an old town canoe um, on ice and uh, an artist wanted uh, that specific uh, canoe and we said we can order you one and they said, no, we want that one. And uh, I think we paid probably about $11,000 in shipping for a you know, $900 canoe or whatever it was. So those are, that's about the extent of crazy that we get. Uh, you could probably write a great book on, on, uh, at the end of this whole thing, how it all shook out and, and all, all of those idiosyncrasies and all of the different things that happened back there. But, well, it's been awesome, Chris. I, I really, like I said at the beginning, I appreciate you taking the time and I hope we've, been able to enlighten our listeners with uh, a little bit of the background, your background, but a little bit of what goes on in, in making this all happen. And I hope that they'll get out if they haven't had an opportunity to see a show, get out and do so. Yeah, please do. I mean, I would just say to people, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to have what we have. Um, and as long as people still come out, we can keep it going. Uh, at the end of the day, the venue can be as beautiful as it wants to be, but if fans stop coming, we've got a much larger problem than the beauty of the venue. Um, so we appreciate the support. It's the only reason we're here. And, uh, you know, again, a town that never should have had this is thriving and people are taking note. Well said. Well said. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again for another Main Matters podcast in the near future. This is Rob Carmichael. We'll talk with you soon. 